I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we're hosting another journal club, and this time it's about porpoises. Mm, plus a local story featuring Rizos? Oh. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. changed it up a little bit today <laughs> hello hello everybody hello. happy august happy end of summer sort of not really it's so getting hot here yes. still it's still summertime and i have realized this month i love august mm. Mm. august is better yeah. than july i agree yes, yes. yeah way better I- don't know if I've ever really made that connection before, and maybe that's just my true sign of being an adulty adult. <laughs> that you have a preferred summer month. I do, and it's like it, I love the summer day, but that it also gets dark at an appropriate time. Yes. Yep. Yep. I like a good eight thirty sunset rather than yep. nine forty five. Yes. It's fabulous. <laughs> August is great. Yep. Everything's wonderful. It's usually less for the moment <laughs> Busy. in the world of our podcast. Yeah. Yep. I'm ignoring the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And with my two best friends, we're going to talk about porpoises. Yay. All right. We're along for the ride. So thank you for joining us, listeners. Uh, for this month's episode, based on some positive feedback we received from you, listeners, we've decided to host a second journal club. And this time, we're focusing on porpoises because they are cetaceans too. And we do love them, even though we don't talk about them very often. And we felt like we hadn't talked about them in a while. So yay, porpoises. (laughs) (laughs) If you uh, are new or you missed our previous Journal Club episode, basically what is Journal Club? It's kind of like book club, except instead of reading a book, the three of us read a journal article, like a scientific journal article about cetaceans obviously and now you get to listen to us talk about it um so we will have a link to the article in our show notes and if you want to take a pause now go read it and come back or you can listen to us and then go read it yourself or you can just listen to us and not read it at all up to you (laughs) all of this so many choices you do you choose your Uh, adventure This month, we read a really interesting article called Extracting Foraging Behavior from Passive Acoustic Monitoring Data to Better Understand Harbor Porpoise, Focana Focana, Foraging Habit- Habitat Use by Nicole Todd, Mark Desit, Emma Rogan, Albi Cavanaugh, published in June 2022. Breaking Science! I think is Breaking Science the name of oh no it's in it's in the article or it's in the journal marine mammal science oh yeah i thought no, it was called breaking, breaking science, science. <laughs> it's because it's new oh i would love to read a journal called breaking <laughs> right why don't we just make one and everything will be free yeah and oh, yeah. um in order to pay for that you have to actively pay into a membership that helps us um identify species and name them properly yes yes okay let's Start work Kickstarter. on that in all of our spare time indeed yeah yeah indeed before we dive into the article itself a little bit about the primary author researcher her name is nicole it's not me let's just get that out of the way uh not me didn't research this uh don't live in ireland which is where most of the study takes place wish i had wish i did but <laughs> not me um 
Nicole R.E. Todd has had two articles published. One, this one is her first where she is the primary author. Her other one was published in 2020, and it was also using passive acoustic monitoring, specifically using passive acoustic monitoring to investigate the occurrence of cetaceans in a protected marine area in Northwest Ireland. She is a PhD researcher in Ireland, specifically working out of the University College Cork, in Cork, and her Twitter handle is Nicole R E Todd, T O D D. We do not know her, but she seems great, and we really liked reading her article. So Nicole, if you're listening, hi, you have a great name, and you do great science. <laughs> Go you. <laughs> yes. Okay. So a little bit of the sort of basic question that the study was trying to answer. Uh, this comes is a quote from the abstract of the paper. So, small coastal cetaceans are often some of the most threatened species in light of anthropogenic and climate change threats. Distributional and behavioral patterns can be difficult to determine for these particularly wide-ranging cryptic species that spend a limited amount of time in the surface waters. Identifying key, key activities and their primary drivers, such as foraging being driven by, new, by prey availability, is essential for ensuring effective conservation and management of critical habitat. So what is that saying? Basically, small cetaceans that are really hard to see in choppy waters, which off the coast of Ireland is basically all the time, um, it's hard to see them from shore, from boats, from anything. So, um, and they are, they are often very threatened because of their small size and they live close to shore, near humans, all that stuff. So this study aims to use a different way of studying their behavior uh, which is passive acoustic monitoring. So basically, passive acoustic monitoring is just listening devices in the water that listen to all the noises, and they used some special acoustic monitoring that had specific, um, like targeted the specific frequencies that por porpoises uh, echolocate at. Um, so yeah, this, uh, like a, a normal telemetry approach of like from boats or from shore or from drones for small cetaceans is really costly. It's limited to really small sizes of tagged individuals, and it's usually limited to, limited to a short time period. So not great. And why do we care about this? Um, because identifying foraging behavior in particular can really help us understand habitat usage and can highlight areas of greater ecological importance uh, rather than um, just knowing that there's animals present and maybe they're just transiting through on their way to a more important area so that it can drive conservation efforts such as protecting um, ocean habitats. Yeah, so the setup, so the study was conducted in Broadhaven Bay, Ireland from April 2009 to November 2017. Broadhaven Bay is a special area of conservation based on the presence of key marine and coastal habitat types listed under Annex 1 of the European Union Habitats Directive. Uh, which I guess would be similar to Sarah here. Yeah. Um, this includes reefs upon sloping bedrock in the outer regions of the bay and subtitled mudflats in sheltered regions. Uh, acoustic data was collected at two locations in the bay using sea pods. Three listening stations, LS numbers one to three, were situated within the inner bay approximately 500 meters apart at depths of 14 to 18 meters. And a fourth listening station, LS4, was situated in the Aris Head region of the Outer Bay at the average depth of 37 meters at high tide. By analyzing the data, they were able to identify foraging events and the proportion of time spent foraging within hours of positive 
corpus detection was calculated at a rate at a, as a ratio of buzzes to total number of clicks detected per given period. The buzz click ratio was used as a measure of foraging intensity, and then they used statistical modeling for foraging activity. That sounds more complicated than it actually is, because that's how papers are written. But there was some hydrophones. They figured out, especially once you get used to uh, what the audio looks like and sounds like of buzzing versus clicks, and what you're, you know what you're looking for, it's much easier to find things once you start analyzing the data. So they would have found them and then made a ratio and then modeling after that to determine foraging events. But it's, yeah, it sounds super complicated, but yeah, and it's, not, it's less complicated than it could <laughs> And also because they have a history of other behavioral analysis of like mm -hmm. visual analysis of what the porpoises are doing that they yeah. can time correlate to other acoustic data, then they can be like, oh, when they make this noise, that means they like caught a fish or... Yeah. Or they're just yeah, yeah. like driving. They're like just going by, like passively echolocating. Passively yeah. echolocating. Yeah. And plus, it's such a long study as well that probably definitely helped for gaining confidence in mm -hmm. the sounds, but also probably didn't help in analyzing the data. Yeah. They, oh boy, they didn't do it all. They didn't do it all visually by humans. They, uh, <laughs> they pre, pre narrowed the data set with pre it some down. computer yeah. help. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. While reading the methodology in this paper, I was transported back to university and I saw the word log and mm, I oh no. had like a complete <laughs> shutdown because uh, for those of you listeners who are not researchers and or have not had the utter pleasure of taking calculus yet, um, you might think the word log, I'm referring to a tree and you're wrong. I'm sorry to say that has to do with math that I never, ever, ever did, do, or will understand. Uh, I think we've talked about this on our episode where we kind of introduced ourselves and kind of talked a little bit more about our backstory and how we came to this wonderful world of whale tales that we have created. <laughs> and I confessed to trying and failing many, many times to pass calculus in university, and I, just, I guess I hadn't thought about it in a long time. <laughs> and just that one word, seeing, like, the LN to the power yeah. of, I just, <laughs> I had to go, I had, if I had been able to put my computer in the freezer for a few minutes, I would have. <laughs> yeah. Power to all of the mathematicians and programmers and people who just understand calculus out there. I am not one of you, but I wish that I was. But thankfully, yeah. this paper, you don't really need to understand the actual stats unless exactly. you're trying to, like, recreate like, the science. understand it. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But for our purposes, That's... we can just read the summaries. Exactly. And that I did love doing. So speaking of summaries, here are Nicole and her colleagues' findings. Uh, a total of 22,778 Corpus positive hours, love saying that, <laughs> were recorded between April 2009. It's a weird way to say that. That just means saying the 2020 and 2022, I guess. <laughs> April 2009 and November 2017. So in that not eight and a bit year time span, there was almost 23,000 hours with porpoises. That's pretty cool. And then 6,847,015 harbor porpoise clicks were analyzed. 
That is crazy to think about. <laughs> Almost 7 million individual clicks were run through her data modeling statistical analysis program, and that is really, really awesome. And they were then used to identify the foraging buses. So during the porpoise positive hours, when there were porpoises spotted, foraging buzzes were detected an average of 33% of the time across all of the listening devices. However, overall time recording of these buzzes ranged considerably throughout the year. So in the summer, it was only a mean of about 15%. And in the fall, which is typically when more foraging behavior was seen, taking everything else into account, uh, it was about 40% of the time. So this is from September to November. We are in the Northern Hemisphere, so Northern Hemisphere fall. There was considerable interannual variability, so variation from year to year. Uh, and when we get to the discussion later, this is one of the things that really stood out to me about the study and the importance of multi-year studies, multi-annual studies. Um, because the mean time of recorded foraging ranged from 6% in 2010 to an analogous high of 32% in the summer months of 2012. So just, again, I know that we've talked about this in, in other episodes of the podcast, but really, really stressing the importance of not making assumptions based on mm. one or two observances yeah. yeah or even like one or two seasons of observances yeah 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 uh, and then finally the highest amount of foraging activity was recorded in the autumn as i said uh, but again even here there were year after year differences with foraging ranging from 27 percent of the time to 72 percent of the time mm -hmm. in the autumn so just just you know 50 percent <laughs> all over the place yeah <laughs> So what did uh, you two think were some of the most interesting things raised by the study? Uh, I think the thing that stood out the most to me was that even though they have this great data, they don't still fully know why they were foraging more at different times of the year or like at different time periods in general. Um, because they're mm -hmm. like, you would also then need to correlate it with prey availability, maybe based on like, fisheries analysis or catch data or something um so it's like were they foraging more just because there was more food were they foraging more because they needed more energy because they were like gearing up for a i don't know like migration or a like torp like a slow they know that the prey availability is going to be really low through the winter or um maybe one of those years there was like a big like nearshore construction project um and that drove them to other areas like there's so many other things that could be driving this behavior change, but it's really cool that they were able to like use the statistics to be able to figure out this like pattern of, or maybe not pattern, but like figure out the starting of a pattern of this highly variable foraging effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause just like, I was just thinking of more and it says here, like um, they mentioned environmental conditions like tide, but like just as we're sitting here in our fourth heat wave, of the summer, I was just thinking about other kinds of environmental impacts, yeah. like climate change, but also like, and not, and not just there, right? Because we don't know, like they're going other places. So like maybe they're foraging a lot because something happened somewhere else and then they yeah. didn't get a chance to forage there. And like, there's so many things and I'm like, we need to put all of these hydrophones in and study all of the purposes 
along the entire coast of England, which sounds like even more work. So that's probably not going to go very well. Yeah. <laughs> the, the cool thing about this study is like, it's a really great, like, for like, maybe not first study, but like initial study mm. that like this type of equipment that can be in the water yeah. for so long and is probably fairly affordable. Um, yeah. Like is able to generate like really usable data. Because mm-hmm. um, this also this reminds me, sorry, of the was it fin whales and they were sharing hydrophone sounds with somebody else who was also studying fish or something, right? Or was it sonar? It was fin whales. Yeah, yeah it was fin yeah. whales. So it just makes me think of like you know like they have this super fancy data now and um, not data data programs and the AIs and with the hydrophone like they're not so they can keep doing this and then maybe team up with other people who can look at the prey but also look at whatever else people want to look at yeah that makes sound in the ocean yeah exactly and also like they say that the same data set was used maybe it was her 2020 paper where they talk about Mm. um just like general availability like how many porpoises were in the area over this time period so like this same data set this same like nine-year data set has been used in at least two studies and probably will continue to be used in more which is awesome too. Like it means that, you know, like research funding goes a lot further when you have like reusable data sets that can be analyzed from yeah. multiple perspectives. If I know anything from going to many marine mammal symposiums, based data sets on um, population numbers will be used many, many, many times. Mm-hmm. Yep. Over and over again for all master's students. <laughs> this, yep. this, this Nicole is going to be cited in a lot of pieces. I'm trying to think if I have anything to add. I don't know if I do. You had, you both had such intelligent commentary. <laughs> like, yeah, I want to say something smart, and I don't know if I have anything else to add. Yeah, I think just like I was, I sort of alluded to when I was reading through the findings. It's it's fascinating to see sort of concrete evidence of interannual differences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, we can, we can say how important that is all we want. We can kind of know that in the background, but seeing the actual data represented by something that we take for granted, of course, I'm superimposing this onto sort of the regularity of sightings that we would consider here on our local coast Mm -hmm. and thinking like, yeah, it would be really, really interesting to see what that actually equates to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, so they talk about like a two or four year sort of cyclical, um, like changes in numbers of these porpoises, but um, they don't really know why necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it could be it could it probably is very likely to do with something that's completely outside of this study area. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah, like we have incredibly good information on one particular species whereabouts here but they're very easy to see exactly only not seven million of them um not there's seven million porpoises but you know what i mean um and but yet but they changed their patterns completely and we weren't entirely sure why and we still are having issues reconciling with that and everybody else did too like and that's the other thing of what else is going on with these these porpoises obviously they're affecting their prey yeah and when they're foraging more where else but what else is happening yeah um, yeah, like there's not a lot of killer whales over there, but I don't know. There's other predators, yeah. Make tasty snacks mm-hmm. for many things. Yep. So, um, 
And this also reminded me a lot of other porpoise studies that we've heard about, uh, like on our coast, they do um, like the porpoise studies um, off like the southern tip of Vancouver Island, where they've been studying, um, is it harbor porpoises there? I think it's mainly harbor porpoises. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, and sort of using similar like passive acoustic monitoring to Mm -hmm. like figure out when, where the porpoises are and where they're going. So yeah, yeah, it was cool sure there could be some future um or maybe there are is already some other um research that's similar to this talking about uh foraging of other populations studied in a similar way yeah do they say that it's like i'm assuming they're not taking the hydrophones out they're just gonna keep Uh, going they probably did come out because that's like when the data set ended probably because they like Mm. reached their end of their life right yeah 2017 Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah would yeah. be my guess. Yeah, it's a long life for the hydrophones. Yeah, Actually, yeah, no, it is. The things I didn't, I don't remember reading in the articles anything about hydrophone maintenance. But yeah, um, mm. I think because they were correlating everything with like when they detected porpoises, so it doesn't really matter so much. Maybe the other study talks a bit more about like if there were gaps in the data because they were doing maintenance. Mm-hmm. But it seems like these CPOD devices are like meant to be sort of just like widely deployed and kind of left alone. Yeah. I don't know enough about them. So like, if it's a certain frequency, is that make for a yeah different kind kind of hydrophone? Like, I know yeah, you would need a certain kind of microphone to detect different, like especially porpoises because they have such a high frequency. It's high like frequency. Yes, here the C pods are meant to detect twenty to one hundred and sixty kilohertz. So yeah, so like they're probably maybe they could have spent more money making them more heavy duty than having to spend on the other stuff. I have no idea. I just made that up. I really don't know. Yeah. Just thinking about how expensive hydrophones can be yeah. um, if you're trying to get all the frequencies or most of them. Yeah, I think so. These ones uh, are cheaper. More generic things. Yeah, these ones are cheaper because they are such a targeted frequency yeah. range. And so, yeah, it seems like they've been widely used for the last sort of 20 years-ish, um, looking at the, ref- cool. uh, the citations in this article. Yeah. Very cool. Hooray, hydrophones. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's loud down there. Hydrophones is. getting cheaper and cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yes, excellent. Yeah. excellent. It's mm-hmm. just science. So if you have read the study, want to read the study, or are just uh, would like to share your thoughts from the summary that we've given you, we would love to hear from you. And we've included a link in the show notes to where you can find the complete article for free, because hooray, access to science. Indeed. Before we continue with the rest of the episode, we want to take a moment to tell you how you can support our podcast and everything we do at Whale Tales. You can support us by becoming a patron by joining us at patreon.com slash whaletales. You can join us for a dollar a month at the porpoise level, $5 a month at the dolphin level, or $10 a month at the whale level. Each level comes with a variety of perks, including discounts on our merch, thank you postcards signed by all three of us, and access to extended interviews and stories with guests when we have them. You can also produce your own fun flipper fact segment of the pod, so you can tell me what to nerd out about. (laughs) Thank you so much to our patrons. You guys are amazing, and we are so grateful for you. If you aren't able to support us financially, there's still other ways that you can help us out. You can leave us a rating or a review on your podcast platform of choice, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or really wherever you're listening to this podcast. This will help other people find us, and you can also just tell in person your cetacean science-y podcast-loving friends all about the podcast and everything we do at Whale Tales. 
Plus, you can follow us on social media. You can check out our handles on our website, whale-tales.org, and you can send us your feedback so that we can keep making the podcast even better. Hooray! Hooray! And now, it's time for Fun Flipper Fact! A fast one. (laughs) Thank you. Today's Fun Flipper Fact also comes from Nicole R.E. Todd's, is that right? Yeah, Nicole R.E. Todd's article, and it was fascinating because I did not know it. (laughs) And it has nothing to do specifically with the study that we were talking about in our discussion. It's just about harbor porpoises in European waters. Fun flipper fact, harbor porpoises are the most commonly occurring and widely distributed cetacean species across all of the European waters. Huh. Fascinating. I don't know what I, I would, would have, not have. I didn't I just I never <laughs> considered to think about yeah, it. So yeah. I never thought about harbor porpoises over there. I don't think about cetaceans in most European waters a lot. I don't know why. I think it's just because I'm so I just think of England as, like, cold and windy, which has nothing to do with water or most of Europe. But I don't know. It's true. As I was reading the article, actually, I kind of was reminded, and I know that we've had this conversation probably off the podcast before amongst the three of us, about just how little I know about the Atlantic Ocean. Especially Mm -hmm. when you take cetaceans out of the equation. Oh, yeah. Because, like, they were listing the main sources of prey. Yeah. And I've got it up right in front of me, actually, because I wanted to talk about it. Gurnard, Turbot, and Whiting. I think I've heard of Whiting as a fish before, but the other two, I was like, yep. Nope. I've heard of, yeah, I I think we have Turbot here. I don't know. I don't know why I've heard of Turbot, but yeah. So it was just, that was interesting. So yeah, I just, I, (laughs) I frequently forget how little I know about the Atlantic Ocean. And it was really interesting to think about the fact that, you know, harbor porpoise is something we, at least I think the three of us, probably not the average person here, but the three of us certainly sort of take a little bit for granted Mm -hmm. in the local waters of the Pacific Northwest are also equally plentiful equally awesome but also probably not particularly uh showy over in the atlantic and european waters too so yep. congrats harbor porpoise you are plentiful. everywhere <laughs> yes good job good, good job, job harbor porpoises keep on being porpoises mm-hmm. now we have a super exciting whale tale from our friend ashley about some rare sighting a rare sighting she saw in july Hi guys, my name is Ashley, and I was asked if I could share uh, a story about one of the incredible encounters that we had this year. Every tour that we do um, is pretty special, but uh, this particular encounter on July 29th of this year was pretty epic. We got to see some incredibly rare visitors to this area. So we started out the day just like any other you know, we get to the office, we have a quick chat, uh, plan our day a little bit. Um, I was lucky enough to be captain this day, and so I got uh, my boat ready, waited for my naturalist to come down to the boat with uh, our guests, and we headed out to search the waters for some whales. Now, we do 
communicate with all the other companies uh, around us because if we didn't, we wouldn't have very good success rates. Um, so when we find whales, of course, we let them know. And if they find whales, they, of course, let us know. Well, on this particular day, we'd been out uh, searching for maybe an hour and uh, we got word from one of the other boats that they had picked up um, something very rare um, and very exciting for the rest of us. Um, it was Rizzo's dolphins. Um, now, there's only ever been a handful of sightings of uh, Rizzo's in the Salish Sea. So hearing that there was these incredible animals hanging out in our waters that we might get to see them on this particular day was very, very exciting. Now, unfortunately, the boat that found them wasn't able to stay with them for very long. So um, they left them, but it was flat, calm waters. It was a beautiful, gorgeous, sunny day. So the chances that we wouldn't be able to pick them up again were fairly small. So we started to make our way in that direction. Uh, definitely was keeping my fingers, toes, everything crossed that we would get to uh, spend some time with these guys. And um, as we were heading towards the coordinates of the last sighting of them, um, we were getting closer and closer and... Uh, well, we got waylaid <laughs> by a very familiar dorsal fin and fluke. Uh, we found Orion, or maybe Orion found us. It's never easy to tell uh, who found who in those situations. But uh, yeah, so we got to spend some time with Orion. Um, now, I'm not going to lie, as much as I love Orion, and I really, really do, um, I think me and Sara, who was my naturalist uh, that day, were just a smidge disappointed <laughs> that it wasn't the Rizzos that we'd found, but uh, the wonderful um, giant Orion. So um, we, we definitely enjoyed our time with Orion, but uh, we were hoping that we would be the ones to pick up the, uh, the Rizzos again. Um, luckily, though, one of our other boats was heading in that direction as well uh, towards the last coordinates of the Rizzos and were able to pick them up. Now, at first, um, those whales, those animals were backlit, so um, they mistake, mistake, mistook them, excuse me, for... Um, uh, orca at first, just because when they were backlit, um, their dorsal fins looked very dark. So it did look like, um, you know, potentially they had some orca. Um, now they actually asked if we could come over to them to try to ID, make sure, you know, what type of orca or of course, if they were actually the Rizzos. So, uh, we broke off from Orion. We left Orion with another boat and, um, headed over to see, um, if we could figure out what these guys were watching. Now it just shows you how rare uh, Rizzo's are that uh, some of the people out here weren't 100% sure what they were looking at. So we got on scene and as soon as Sarah and I arrived, we were like, wait a minute, these dorsal fins don't really look like orca fins. Um, we weren't in a spot that they were quite as backlit, I think. Um, but the curve of the fins is is very it's not very different, but there's just a different feel to them. So we realized pretty quick that we uh, were not looking at Orca. We were actually looking at what we were hoping that we would get to see, and that was the Rizzo's dolphins. Now, the crazy thing is, is these aren't animals that we ever, you know, see here. So the knowledge base that we had was very minimal um, in sharing information with our guests. But uh, I can tell you, we all certainly brushed up on our Rizzo's information after that. Um, 
but we were just so enthralled with these animals. I wish that we could have spent so much more time with them. The scars and scratches and markings on their bodies are just so intense and just really remarkable. The coloration of these animals, the their rostrums are just almost completely white, um, you know, some more white than others, but they're just the stories they must have um, with all those scars on their bodies. Um, they're just really, really beautiful animals, and we we're very excited to see them. They're so distinctive looking, and as much as, you know, this area is a very strange place for them to be, and maybe that it does have something to do with climate change or, you know, new distribution of the prey that they may be looking for. It's hard to say why they're here, um, but they're such an interesting animal that hopefully we do get to see them um, again in future future encounters. Um, but I hope that it's not because things are going wrong with our planet, just that they're expanding their range maybe. But um, these guys are just... It was only four animals that we got to hang out with. So it is a very small pod for uh, a group of Rizzos, but the four have such distinctive dorsal fins. You could literally pick out, you know, the individual just based on that dorsal fin, the, the shape, the notches, the scars, everything was so different from individual to individual. And um, it just makes, it just makes for really cool looking animals and I know I've already sort of said that but they're just so intriguing and I very much look forward to seeing um, if we get to see these guys again and what what situations are causing them to come into this area because in January there was a group that came in that was much bigger I think it was somewhere around 20 um, individuals and even that apparently is a small group for um, these dolphins to travel in. So to see four seems like a very unusual grouping as well. But um, yeah, they're just amazing. And not only did we get to see them at the beginning of the day, but we had a second tour in the afternoon and managed to go out and uh, get to spend time with them again, which was really cool. Um, I can't express to you the level of excitement that all of the staff um, who were out on the water that day uh, were feeling because it, it was just beyond words. We had, we had no words to describe how excited we were, but um, yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully this won't be the last time that we get to see these guys, but it was uh, my first time. I've been, you know, in whale watching for about 11 years and that was my first time getting to see these guys. Um, Hopefully in the future, um, maybe not here, but maybe elsewhere, I'll get a chance to um, to see them again. And maybe next time it'll be a bigger group. But the four were absolutely amazing. And I treasure every moment with those guys. That's my story. Woohoo! Ah. Mm. Thanks, Ashley. It's so ridiculous. Yep. Can you imagine? So oh. close. Someday. That's so cool. It's so cool. You saw it, Rizos. I know. I know. But not, not here. here. No. <laughs> um, Off, like, where Rizos are supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. And you can hear more about what Ashley saw this summer in an upcoming episode. That's the teaser. Don't forget to subscribe. Woo! <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Before we wrap up the podcast, we wanted to share with you all um, a call to action for this um, time of year. If you have been out on the water enjoying your summer or winter, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, um, don't forget that if you saw any cetaceans, you can share your stories with us, but also please, please, please report your sightings to your local cetacean sightings network here in British Columbia. We have the BC CSN, BC Cetacean Sightings Network. On our website, we've got links to lots of other places where you can um, share your sightings uh, because there are scientists and researchers and conservation groups that are super eager to have as much data about where and when humans are seeing cetaceans when they are on the water. So that's our call to action for August. And if you know of any settings mm. networks that aren't on our website, please do let us know. We are very behind on keeping that up to date because we have many things going Indeed. on. Yes. But we will update it if you have one. So just send them along, please. And thank Oh, yeah. Good call. And I think that about brings us to the end of our episode. We would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and, of course, any of our episodes. So please visit our website, whale-tales.org, where you can find links to our various social media handles and you can drop us a line. You can also tweet at us directly. I am FHG07. Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H. And Nicole is Nick F. Can, C-A-N-N. You can also head to our website to subscribe to this podcast, check out our merchandise, learn about supporting us and becoming a patron, and read over 1,100 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. And if you've seen a cetacean, we would love to add your story to our library. Click the share link on our website. You can contact us on social media, or you can email us a voice memo like Ashley did and tell us all about your incredible cetacean encounter. Finally, we want to acknowledge that we recorded today's episode on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples and the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, as well as the homelands of the Tawasan First Nation. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us, and we hope that you have a really great day.